بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ألف لام غلبت الروم في أدنى الأرض What you are currently listening to is a recitation of the Surat Arum, or chapter 30 of the central religious text of Islam, the Holy Quran. When I was a teenager, I lived in Saudi Arabia for just over three years and was able to hear this type of recitation five times every single day when the daily prayer times were being announced. This practice, also known as Salat, is one of the five central pillars of Islam. Now before you click away, no, this is not a religious podcast. The title of the podcast is true. This is the International Legal Comparacast, and I'm Weston Smiley, your host. Saudi Arabia is the topic of this week's podcast because not only do I have personal life experience with Saudi Arabia and its legal system, but it is one of the more unique legal systems of the developed nations of the world. I hope that from the research I have done and the insights or stories shared by my special guests this week are as enlightening for you as they were for me, and I'm glad you're able to join me today for this podcast. Saudi Arabia is a theocratic monarchy, with the state religion being Islam. Thus, the law of the nation is also based on Islam. That law is derived from two central sources, primarily the Holy Quran and secondarily the Sunnah, which are held in Islam to be the practices and teachings of the Islamic prophet Muhammad during his life. The name of this law is Sharia, which translated means the clear, well-trodden path to water. From this translation, we can understand why this law is so central to a theocratic state like Saudi Arabia. For the Muslims who make up approximately 93% of the population, this law represents not only a good way to govern society, but a uniquely God-given law that they must follow in order to fulfill their injunction as Muslims, to follow Allah and his teachings as communicated through the Prophet Muhammad. However, There is more to this religiously-based legal system than simply the Quran and the Sunnah. I wanted to learn more about the relationship between religion and law, so I turned to a lawyer who's practiced in Saudi Arabia for the last 10 years. My name is uh, Paul Lockyer, and I am an international partner with Norton Rose Fulbright, uh, and I've been in the Riyadh office for about the past 10 years. I knew Paul quite well during the years I lived in Saudi, and I'm very grateful for his willingness to speak with me about the unique aspects of Sharia law and the Saudi Arabian judicial system. Because our interview took place over Zoom and over 7,600 miles apart, you may hear some artifacts of the recording and some oddities, but be assured that the information that Paul expounds in this interview is well worth slightly lesser audio quality. In Saudi Arabia, there are two types of crimes. There is Had or crimes against God, and Chisas, where you have acted against another party. In the case of Chisas, the offended party has the right to demand recompense in the form of exacting the same punishment that they received onto the offending party, or receiving money equivalent to the offense. In the following clip, I wanted to know about Paul's experience with both the religious aspect of Saudi law and his understanding of how punishment is meted out. What I would say is that um, uh, Saudi is a unique 
uh, environment where you have a crossover between religion and law, right? So um, the Sharia law is based on Islamic principles um, as set out in the Quran and as identified by various uh, Islamic scholars. The interesting thing about that is uh, with religion, you know, comes the ideas of morality and doing the right things and the idea that, um, you know, we're following a higher purpose than, than simply just complying with rules that, that keep us all safe. In terms of how laws are created here, often the laws are created by royal decree um, or, or they're, they're issued by, by the governing body. So, so that's how they're created. But uh, one of the interesting things to me is the impact that the religion has on the rules that govern the society. And, and I guess that we have that in the West as well. Um, but uh, everything is, is uh, newer and fresher here in Saudi so that the links between um, the, the religious and moral code uh, is much closer with the law itself. In terms of, of how we deal with that, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a corporate partner with the firm. Um, so I'm dealing with a lot of corporate deals. I do a little bit of litigation when I'm called in to, to help the litigation team. But we, we see it throughout Saudi. Um, so there are, there are examples literally everywhere you go. So I, I'll, I'll give you an example of the, the moral and, and practical side of, of Sharia and how it impacted the law. We were dealing with a project uh, where they... Um, our client was going to be traveling uh, by truck through an area where there were uh, camel farms. Um, and as a part of that, um, you know, our, our client asked, well, look, you know, if something bad happens while we're traveling through these areas, what are we liable for? And as we, we looked into the laws, um, what, what we found is that in Sharia, there is a, a term called dia, where, um, and sometimes it's referred to as blood money. So if you kill a man, it's, it's worth a certain amount. And if you kill a camel, it's also worth a certain amount. And if, if you kill a female, it's worth a different amount. Um, and so um, at the time that I was looking into this, and it was some time ago now, um, the the amounts were a, a, a male, uh, the dia that you would have to pay is 300,000 uh, rials. Um, so, so that was the price, which doesn't seem like a lot for a life, but, um, but it, it's the idea of, of putting, putting that family back into a situation where they can look after themselves. Uh, and, and typically here, the, the male is the breadwinner. Um, for a camel... Um, the price was 150,000 rials on the basis that the camels, uh, particularly, you know, some time ago, maybe not so much now, but they were beasts of burden and, and they would help provide for the family. The, the thing that was a little bit striking to me at the time was when we looked into the, the deer that would be paid if a, if a female was to um, be killed. That was 100,000. And, and at the time, 
um, that that seemed not right to me that that you know the life of the female is worth less than the life of the camel um, or, or for that matter less than the life of the man the idea behind it I'm told is that the, the woman wasn't the one who was providing for the family um, therefore the, the the cost or the inconvenience to the family and loved ones was was less for a female as Paul mentioned in that clip the monarchical leaders like the king and crown prince of Saudi Arabia are able to issue royal orders that are legally binding on the kingdom. Just before I moved to Saudi Arabia, the days of the weekend changed. Friday is the Islamic day of worship, so the weekend was originally structured around Friday, with Thursday acting as the equivalent of Saturday in the West. That means that for many years during Saudi's globalization, the working days of the week were Saturday through Wednesday. That gave businesses only a three-day overlap with their international partners and clients, which you can imagine would often cut into productivity and profits for these companies. However, just before I arrived, the king issued a decree that the weekend would now be Friday and Saturday in order to give businesses an extra day, Thursday, of overlap with international business days. This change took effect instantly, and every business had to adjust the very same week of the announcement. Paul expounded another couple of examples when this principle of royal legal authority affected his business and those he associated with. Well, speaking of, um, you mentioned that a lot of laws are created by royal order, and this just kind of popped into my head. I um, didn't send you this question beforehand, but I remember right before I moved into the country, the king had sent out a decree to change the weekend to change which days were business days and which were not business days. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit about um, what the change was and how that impacted your business in the following weeks? I, I was working five and a half days or six days a week and, and had literally zero time. But part of the reason why I needed to work so many days was because there wasn't a lot of crossover between the UAE weekend, the US weekend, and the Saudi weekend, right? And and so um, basically, when when that change happened, it was a real blessing in my life because all of a sudden I got two days off instead of um, one and a half days, and which often you know decreased down to one. Um, I, I mean, it, it is a a kingdom proper, right? I mean. The king rules the country, and if the king says something, then it, it is automatically put into law, and and literally overnight it, it will it will change um, what happens. And um, so, one of the things that I remember it was slightly before the time that that you know you're recollecting, um, but there was a time during Arab Spring when the king had been out of the kingdom. Um, he had had some surgery. He came back um, and um, he announced overnight that all of the government sector would have two weeks paid leave to celebrate the fact that he was returning to the kingdom. And, you, you know, it was this great event. Now, you know, as a, as a lawyer, we had been, you know, promising 
certain things to certain clients, you know, that we were going to be working with the government authorities to process their applications and to incorporate companies or register branches or whatever it was. And so we were left in a position on a Thursday evening where we had to go back to our clients and say, look, I'm, I'm really sorry, uh, but the king has announced this holiday. And so even though you expected us to get to this work, you know, early next Saudi week, um, it's actually going to be, you know, more than two weeks from now. And that's a really hard thing, right? I, you, you know, at, for me, I, I felt a little bit like a, a student at school saying that, you know, the dog ate my homework or something um, b- because we're having to explain what's happened. But it, it, things literally can change that quickly. Um, so by the, the, the king ordering something, automatically things change. And, and everybody just accepts that that's the way the law works and they adjust and, and you find a new way of doing things. Um, we had a, a similar case um, where one of our clients entered into a substantial lease uh, for a large piece of land where they were going to develop a training facility somehow. Um, and between the time that they signed the lease and the time that they paid the deposit, the king announced that all of the land in that area was suspended, um, that no building permits or approvals could be given, uh, that it couldn't be uh, mortgaged, that that you could basically take no action with that land uh, because the the kingdom were going to look to develop that land uh, and uh, in particular the public investment fund um, were now responsible for the development of that land. Something very unique about the Saudi Arabian law that I was not aware of prior to my interview with Paul is the lack of precedent. In most Western countries there exists a principle that I think most of us feel is fairly self-evident in our legal systems. That is, that like cases ought to be treated alike. For example, if a Caucasian 40-year-old man steals a $30,000 car, and an African-American 25-year-old woman steals a $30,000 car, in the exact same manner, those two cases should be judged as indistinguishable and be sentenced in the same way. This is a vital part of our due process system that attempts to ensure fairness in the sentencing of convicted persons. In Saudi Arabia, however, they are not bound by precedent. So that means each time you go to court, um, it's up to the judge to decide based on the facts and and based on their understanding of the law, how things come out. Um, And and that makes for some really interesting and challenging times. Um, You know, it's a newer jurisdiction, so you're always trying to find um, the best answers without necessarily they're always having been precedent uh, to follow and, and other examples with, that you can just carry on from. Um, so from that point of view, I, I know for me, I found it a, a really interesting place to practice law um, and uh, much more, um, there's much more problem solving, there's much more um, involvement in, in trying to find workable solutions than there might be if I was back in New Zealand or somewhere else. That's really interesting. So do they, they're not bound by precedent, but they, do they ever reference precedent? So n- not typically. Um, now, 
what you would do in a litigation situation, um, you might present, um, here are the Sharia principles that support our desire for a particular, particular outcome in a particular case. Um, and they will take those into account. Um, but again, it's actually very difficult to find precedents um, you, you know, there's no organized system by which they record all of the judgments. Um, and it, it feels somewhat haphazard in the courts at times. You, you know, sometimes you get very good results. Um, sometimes um, you're not even sure why you get so good results. Um, but, um, but, but sometimes you get results that, that you, you struggle to justify. Um, so... So no, they, they don't normally refer to precedent. They don't normally refer to other judgments. Um, I, I guess going back to one of my earlier comments, the one good thing is that the judges do feel morally bound to um, give the right judgment, right? So certainly, and having worked in a number of other countries in the Middle East, um, I feel like the system here in Saudi, it actually operates much more fairly um, for, you know, foreign companies and Saudis. After our first interview, Paul actually contacted me again and let me know that there was a very interesting story that he wanted to share with me as an example of when he felt that the Saudi Arabian system treated a case more fairly than perhaps it would have been treated in a Western country. As a small content warning, this story does contain some references to gun violence and descriptions of the injuries to the victim of that violence. There's nothing terribly graphic about the description, but be warned, if you'd prefer to avoid that kind of content, you may want to skip the next five or so minutes of the podcast. Basically, we had a client uh, that we were working with. Um, they um, asked for some support for one of their employees. And um, really what had happened is that uh, the employee was an instructor um, for, the, for the client's company, and um, he was instructing Saudi students. And, and I, I'm not even sure that I know the exact uh, kind of information that he was instructing them on. But long story short, the instructor was working with a student, and the student uh, was having some problems. Uh, he, he failed some tests. And the, the way that the particular institution worked, it didn't, you know, it wasn't bad for him. He wasn't getting kicked out of school or anything, but he did need to pass the test. Um, and so when that happened, um, uh, ultimately, um, I, the, I the student needed to retake the test so that he could pass. And the, the instructor found that he left class and started studying for this this retaking of the test. Um, and the problem with that is because everyone else had taken the test, the class was moving on with a different subject. And so, you know, the instructor went to him and said, hey, look, you, you know, I understand that you need to study. I do want you to pass. Um, but for now, we're actually moving on to a new topic. So I'd rather that you came back to class and, and you, you know, after class, you, you know, go ahead and study and make sure that you pass the test. Um, and so the, there was a, a little bit, bit of an, a disagreement um, there, but it, it wasn't substantial. Um, 
anyway, um, the next day, uh, the student um, came back to class, um, entered the classroom, and um, he actually shot the instructor, the instructor twice. Um, so the instructor was seated on a chair, um, kind of leaning forward, teaching, uh, you know, working with another student. Um, the Saudi shot him. Um, you know, he was standing, so he was up higher. So he shot him down sort of through the chest. Um, somehow he, he missed kind of, you know, major organs. Um, and the bullet went all the way down and it, and it lodged um, near the hip area of this guy. Um, the guy, you know, stumbled forward um, and, and to his side a little and he shot him again. And it, it went um, kind of uh, from from the, the side of his back through and it lodged so that it was it was almost um, uh, at his spine. And then basically the, the Saudi student um, put the gun back in his pocket, um, left the room as though nothing had happened. He left the building, jumped in his car and left. Um, and then he... Um, gave himself up to police uh, several hours later. In, in terms of what happened for the um, instructor, um, it happened to be that on this particular day, there was actually an ambulance that was already at the facility. So it was there for something completely unrelated. Um, but when they found that someone needed medical help and, and they called for an ambulance, they're like, look, we have someone there now. Um, so, so that was very lucky. When the instructor got to the hospital, um, fortunately, someone, and I want to say it was from Germany, it was somewhere in Europe, but, but there was a, a vi visiting physician who, um, you know, could perform the surgery that just happened to be doing some work with the hospital at the time. Uh, he was called in to operate. I mean, the truth is the guy had already lost a huge amount of blood. Just, you know, had it not been for that sequence of events, he would have died. But as it was, um, he, he lived. Um, and uh, look, I, I imagine that, that there would be several years of medical issues that arise after those sorts of injuries, right? But he lived. Um, so I was called in um, and really the client said, look, we are conscious of the way that Sharia works. Uh, we, we've heard of this blood money principle. Um, you know, what we want to do is we want to support our employee through this process of, you know, how do we, how do we work out how to deal with the situation? That is, is probably kind of the deepest that I've got into Sharia during my time here. Um, and first we looked at the process, right? So in terms of process, the guy had been arrested. Um, the police then owned the charges against him. And there's nothing that the victim could do in order to drop those charges if he wanted to, right? Those, are, the, those belong to the state. And so the state are going to deal with those criminal charges. Um, the, the next step is 
um, you know, he obviously has the opportunity in Sharia court, you know, to plead guilty or not guilty and to, and to go through that process. Uh, what we found is that in this case, he elected to plead guilty. Um, and, you know, it would have been difficult for him to do otherwise, right? Um, but, um, but he chose to plead guilty. The, the next step was really the family, who was a reasonably prominent name in Saudi. Um, I, I mean, I can tell you it's not the royal family, right? But, but it's another very familiar name that, you know, you don't have to be here very long to hear the name. So the next step is the father of the offender um, reached out um, to this guy in order to try and settle any civil claims that he might have and, and try and settle the differences between the two so that when they go to court for the sentencing, um, he could tell the judge, look, we've settled, you know, the victim has, you know, has accepted um, our offering and, um, and they no longer have any difficulties. And what that means is that the judge is able to issue a lesser penalty than he otherwise would have. Um, in this case, um, really, a lot of the research that we did was to look into what are the, uh, the approximate amounts that would be reasonable in order to settle this? And basically where we got to, I mean, obviously the guy lived, right? So it's going to be less than 300,000 riyals in, in terms of what the Sharia value is for the injury that's occurred. Um, and uh, so we did some research and, and, we thought ultimately, um, based on other cases that we became aware of, which again, you, you know, we talked about yesterday, that there's no bound precedent, right? So there's nothing to tell a Sharia judge, hey, this is what happened in another case. And so this should now be, you know, a binding precedent on you. But you can get an idea of how these judgments work and what the approximate values were. Um, but basically, we said, look, um, you know, if you were offered somewhere between 100,000 reals and 150,000 reals, that's probably going to be a reasonable amount. Um, and uh, when we shared that information with the victim, the victim said, no, I want a million pounds. Um, and, and we said, look, you know, you're entitled to kind of set the figure that you would like to. You, you know, we that that's up to you. What what you'd be willing to accept versus what they're willing to offer. Um, and I think um, you know. So he let us uh, reach out to the to the father of the of the offender, and the father said, look. All I can offer you is 100,000 pounds. We just can't gather the uh, you know, million pounds that he's asking for in order to settle this. We, we just we don't have access to it. And, and I think our client, because they had understood that the name is fairly prominent, and it is a prominent name, 
but you know as you might recall there are different kind of families within those family names and so there are some that are much more affluent than others um, and so not everybody has the, the same access to funds and, and the same uh, ability to, to make a, a really quite a substantial payment like that. Ultimately, where we got to in the end is the victim said, no, you know, no deal. I'm not accepting £100,000. Um, I want a million pounds and that's the only way I'll settle and add it. And by this stage, um, the victim had traveled back to the UK um, to convalesce. And that was almost the end of what we did. <laughs> so, so we had relayed the different things. The family had rejected. Um, he had rejected the family's offer. And, and so we were basically at an impasse. And so what it meant was, um, in, in terms of the offender, um, it, it meant that they were not able to settle the matter. And so um, ultimately, I think that they had to go back to court and in terms of the sentencing, um, they, they, all they could say was we weren't able to settle the matter between the two parties um, and, and therefore it was up to the judge to settle. You know, the victim essentially got nothing out of it, right? I mean, he got medical costs because everyone here is, is um, covered for medical insurance. Um, he, he got some assistance from his company um, in, in order to get him home and, and allow him to convalesce. Um, but other than that, he didn't receive anything a, a, as, a, as a payment. My own experiences in Saudi were, thankfully, nothing even close to what Paul's client went through. But it was still extremely fascinating to hear about how differently such a violent case was handled in Saudi versus how it would have been handled in the West. There may be disparity among people who hear this story in their opinions of what was really fair in this situation. In my estimation, perhaps there is a middle ground that could be found that would be more fair than either offer that was made during the case. One million pounds seems like an inordinate sum of money. Yet, in the West, getting much more money than you really need to make up for medical costs, lost wages, loss of consortium, etc., is not at all unheard of. Perhaps the settlement's offer of £100,000 seems relatively low for such a serious injury and doesn't truly cover the damages that client received. That being said, I think the point that Paul was driving at, the one that I personally agree with, is that the Saudi legal system is not seeking to ruin either party, and thus is more fair, in general. The judges are simply seeking to let the victim get just recompense, make the perpetrator pay for their crime, and allow both parties to continue with their lives. Saudi Arabia's incarceration rate is over three times less than that of the US by using this just recompense system. Your own view of these facts and statistics is yours to formulate, but it is worth considering when comparing the legal systems of the world. Moving on from this topic, I wanted to know how Paul felt about bureaucratic forces and the separation of powers in Saudi Arabia. I particularly wanted to know whether he felt like bribery was a problem in the country and the judicial system as a whole because of a unique and harrowing experience I had in Saudi when I was 17. My mother and I were about to leave the country for the summer, including taking a short trip to London and spending time with family during American Independence Day. When we got to the airport, we found out that the sponsor for our visas, of which you need both an entrance and exit visa in Saudi Arabia, 
had put a block on our visas because they didn't know whether we were in or out of the country. This led to us being stuck in Saudi for two additional weeks and missing out on all the plans we had made. It was only through the efforts of the U.S. State Department, a member of which we knew quite well, and the help of a Saudi who was well entrenched in the government that we were finally able to get the blocks taken off of our visas the day prior to a two-week government shutdown. Though we didn't have to pay any non-necessary money, I spoke with my parents and found that there were thoughts at the time that such payments, or bribes, might have been needed to grease the wheels of bureaucracy. Though that wasn't the case for us, it seems clear that there have been cases of bribery in the past. Though this experience was very difficult for me at the time, it also taught me a lot about the international world of bureaucracy. Because of this experience, I wanted to know if Paul had experienced anything similar, and he shared a surprising and relatively new development in Saudi Arabia. I, I would say that it was rampant um, prior to um, the, the crown prince calling in uh, a number of the senior business people and and royal family in Saudi. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's quite public um, that they were called into the Ritz-Carlton. Um, you know, various things that they had done were, were discussed with them. And, you know, people were given an opportunity to return funds to the people of Saudi Arabia. Um, and, and so, um, really, I think that that marked a special moment in time in Saudi, um, where the crown prince was saying, we, we will no longer accept this. Um, it, it, it has to stop. Um, as a system, we, we can't afford to let corruption um, eat away at, at the funds of the state. Um, when that happened, and, and I think shortly before that, they had established the Anti-Corruption Commission, um, and um, that commission has been given a lot more power. I, I think that there is a, there have been, um, you know, multiple times when others who are below that very high level of, of kind of prominence in Saudi have also been called to, into question over, over bribes, and, and that continues today. With all of this taken together, I think the differences between the Saudi Arabian legal system and those of Western countries are extremely evident. When asked about what he believed to be the biggest difference between the Saudi legal system and those of Western countries, he reiterated the fact that judges feel a moral imperative to deliver a just outcome for every party involved. Even though there is no such thing as precedent and legal cases are not recorded in a reliable way, these facts make it so that the judges of Saudi Arabia have to take each case individually and consider each case that comes into their court. I find this difference fascinating, and I think that it certainly has its pros and its cons. The American court system relies heavily on precedent to deliver outcomes that are seen as just. Yet, when one is forced to consider the evidence and moral implications based on a theocratic system for each and every case, perhaps there is more room for leniency and true justice. I can't pass judgment on the law system of Saudi Arabia because of how utterly and completely different it is, and the cultural context in which it operates is equally different and fascinating. But I can say that it is worth studying and learning about because it has changed the way that I view the court system of the United States and other Western countries. Of course, there are similarities that exist between the systems of Saudi Arabia and the United States. The law is still separate from the other branches of government. 
Though the king has ultimate governmental and legal authority, the courts have their own place in Saudi Arabia, and their judgments are generally upheld. You can still appeal judgments. There is recourse for those that feel they have been wronged. The king, much like the president of the United States, has the power to offer pardons in cases where he sees fit. Though the power of the king is inordinate and the courts are run quite differently from the U.S., the Saudi Arabian legal system accomplishes its goals and seeks to provide just outcomes for every party involved. I was very impressed by how effective the court system is, despite its completely different basis for procedure than what I have always known. In this podcast, I've only scratched the surface of the intricacies and unique aspects of the Saudi Arabian legal system, but I trust that you have learned something from my research and the personal knowledge and experience of my guest, Paul. If you've enjoyed this podcast or have critiques, please leave a rating and review so that I can improve my future episodes. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you are able to join me in the next International Legal Comparacast, wherein I will be discussing the surprisingly new legal system of the People's Republic of China.